Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia, and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the essential shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. And I'm joined by my partner in this enterprise, Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the Arlie Burke Chair of Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Elliot, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm uh, a little bit frustrated. I'm staring at a stack of books I want to read and I don't know where to begin. But I did just read a wonderful book uh, by our guest today. Uh, He didn't choose the title I would have chosen. The title I would have chosen is, they may have been wrong, but they really weren't criminals or idiots. <laughs> well, that brings us to our guest. Our guest is, is Melvin Leffler, the Edward Statinius Professor of History at the University of Virginia. I think it's fair to say that Mel is the most distinguished historian of American foreign relations alive today. He is the author of numerous books, including The Elusive Quest about American foreign policy, but between the two wars, a subject we discussed with Bob Kagan a few weeks back. He's also the author of Preponderance of Power, a very important book on the origins of the Cold War. He's author of The Specter of Communism, Safeguarding Democratic Capitalism, and For the Soul of Mankind about the Reagan-Gorbachev years. And now the author of the correct title, Elliot, to the contrary notwithstanding, is Confronting Saddam, George W. Bush and the Invasion of Iraq. Mel, it's great to have you. Welcome. I'm delighted to be with you. Uh, it's a real pleasure to speak to to both of you about what I consider a really important topic that's generated a lot of controversy. Well, let's get started with that. Tell our uh, our listeners why it is that you decided to write this book and what are your findings that they should be aware of? Well, uh, I decided to write this book mainly because I like to write about the most important developments in the history of American foreign policy. So in essence, my first book was about, you know, why Republican officials chose to pursue a different policy than Wilsonian diplomacy. My second book was about, you know, why did the Cold War start? My third real book was about, you know, why did the Cold War end? And living through the events of 2001, 2002, 2003, I had the feeling that uh, I was living through a transformative moment in the history of American foreign policy. And I thought it would be great to write about that. But I also thought at the time that I would never be able to access the types of documents that I had used for my previous efforts. I knew I could submit MDR requests and FOIA requests a mandatory declassification requests and freedom of information requests. Uh, but I also knew that the prospects of really getting real documents were unlikely. I was lucky um, that uh, thanks to contacts like, like you, Eric, I was able to establish communication with many key policymakers, and most of them, but not all, agreed to interviews that in my own judgment turned out to be extraordinarily fruitful. The one key policymaker I did not talk to was President Bush himself, who, uh, despite my requests, uh, he or his aides uh, uh, turned me down. So I'm writing this book, or I wrote this book, because I thought it was an incredibly important moment in the history of American foreign policy. And I still think it is. And we can talk about, you know, why I I so think. But as for the results of the book or the major findings uh, of of the book, let let me state uh, three or four or five of the most important. First, I argue that President Bush himself was the most important consequential decision maker. This goes against the grain of a great many studies and even films which depict uh, Vice President Cheney or the neocons 
as the like Paul Wolfowitz uh, as the key decision makers. Uh, I found it very, very clear that President Bush was the decider, as he liked himself to say. He was, in fact, the key decision maker on policies regarding Iraq. Secondly, uh, what's very important is that I found that the principal motivation, the major motivation for invading Iraq were concerns about American national security. President Bush did not invade Iraq in order to promote freedom or democracy. I argue that once he decided to invade Iraq, he himself did hope to nurture freedom and democracy. But that was not the motivation. His cons- I focus a huge amount of attention on the importance of fear and threat perception. And we can discuss aspects of, of, of those perceptions in, in a few minutes, if you wish. But my argument links the perception of threat with the sense of power with an considerable amount of hubris. These three factors, fear, power, hubris, account for the invasion of Iraq. Fears about national security, power, the sense that the United States had the military capabilities to deal with the threat that the United States perceived, and hubris, the belief that an invasion would be welcomed uh, by Iraqis and that the United States could achieve its objectives rather rather easily. So a second major, major finding is that what we often hear that there was a messianic missionary fervor that led to the invasion of Iraq with the anticipation and hope that the United States would transform the entire Middle East. Those were not the key motivations in my account. Third major aspect uh, of my book was that policymakers actually believed, sincerely believed, that Saddam Hussein possessed weapons of mass destruction. I point out that they exaggerated their own certainty about that finding. They did exaggerate it, especially in key speeches by the vice president and by Condi Rice, the national security advisor. They did exaggerate, but I show that they sincerely believe that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction. Elliot, this leads to to your comments, um, jocular as it was at the beginning, that yes, I do think you could sum up a lot of my book by saying that they may well have done the wrong thing, but they were not stupid and they were not criminals. And the reason I argue that they were not stupid in believing that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction was one, almost all intelligence agencies around the world believe that. Many Iraqis, most Iraqis, believe that Saddam Hussein still had chemical and and or or biological weapons. And most of all, officials believed that Saddam possessed weapons of mass destruction because they believed that they had learned the lessons of history. As a historian, I was empathetic to this argument. What they had learned was that Saddam had developed weapons of mass destruction in the 1970s and 1980s. Indeed, he had been infatuated with weapons of mass destruction in the 1970s and 1980s. He developed them. He used them. He used them not only in a war of aggression against Iran, but he also used them to suppress his own people, both the Kurds in the north and the and the Shia in the south. He then lied about his weapons of mass destruction, and he concealed his weapons of mass destruction. And Americans also knew that they had hugely underestimated how much progress he had made on weapons of mass destruction in 1988, 89, 90, and, and 91. So as a result of those factors, 
they believe that notwithstanding that they did have information that the evidence that they had was unreliable and not conclusive, they still thought they had very good reason to believe that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. A fourth important part, conclusion of my book was that war planning did not mean that President Bush had made up his mind to go to war. War planning began in December of 2001 and continued for more than a year. But I demonstrate that President Bush himself did not believe that the inauguration of war planning meant that he had made up his mind to go to war. In fact, war planning, as I illuminate in the book, was part of a strategy of coercive diplomacy, a strategy of coercive diplomacy that he actually, that President Bush worked with Tony Blair to implement. I would say those are the, the major generalizations of the book. You know, that's a, it's a wonderful summary in the book, which, but let me just stipulate at the beginning, I think it's a terrific book. You know, Eric and I both have somewhat different angles on this. Eric was really in the bowels of the beast. I was on the defense policy board, so I got one angle there, which I may want to ask you about later on. But I'm, uh, I suppose I'm most curious about you as an historian approaching a you know, very dramatic recent event, which people still feel strongly about. So my first question I'd like to ask you is, uh, did you, are your conclusions different from the ones that you suspected when you went into this? I mean, did you have some null hypotheses that you were starting with and they were either confirmed or disproven, or do you just kind of go in with a blank slate in terms of what you think you're going to find? I did not have really strong personal beliefs of my own. I think I had read a great deal, so I was very familiar with the literature and, and, the, gen and the generalizations about this. I think I suspected that the neocons had more of a role than I found to be the case. I think I suspected that democracy promotion and a missionary fervor were more consequential than I think they turned out to be. But I did think uh, when I began that, that the policymakers were sincere in their beliefs that, that Saddam Hussein had, had weapons of mass destruction, although I did suspect that there was hyperbole, as there always is when presidents are trying to mobilize public opinion. I think those were the ge general beliefs. I didn't have any sense at all, frankly, of the so-called strategy of coercive diplomacy, although th that phrase was occasionally used at the time. I think it's become a much more frequent explanation of what went on subsequent to the developments. It's, it's, it's true. I mean, it's clearly true that, that Condi Rice talked about the policy as coercive diplomacy starting in, in early 2002. Uh, but I, I was not really aware of that. And so that whole part of my book was illuminated by the research, the documents, and the discussions I carried on. And just one question before I give you back to Eric on this. I get the impression that early reviews have had more than their share of bile. And I'm just wondering if you could comment on the the reaction to the book, because, you know, I think the, the fact is that the conventional wisdom in intellectual circles and in foreign policy circles, and certainly in democratic circles, but even in Republican circles these days is, you know, this was incredible folly. These people were either criminal or idiots. And you really do challenge that. I do. And um, the, I would say overall, Honestly, Elliot, the, the reactions, for the most part, have been positive in terms of the formal reviews uh, uh, of the book. I had uh, one negative, one negative review uh, of of the book, and um, and I don't think that it was a fair fair minded review. And I can talk about it if you wish. But the reaction to my book is really complicated by the fact that the book does two things, in my opinion. 
it's an empathetic account of the policymakers. It takes their perceptions and emotions seriously. And frankly, I'm empathetic with their with the perception of threat. So all the people who believe that the policymakers were liars or had bad intentions from the moment they came into office, or that there was no good reason to want to get rid of Saddam Hussein, all the people who believe that are unhappy with my book. And uh, many of them are my liberal friends who expected me to uh, to take a, a similar view. But I honestly did not find the evidence to, to support that. I would have been inclined to argue that if the evidence suggested that. On the other hand, if you if you read my book, it's also relentlessly critical of the policymakers themselves. I believe that they engaged poorly in the decision-making process. They did not weigh sufficiently costs and consequences before deciding on a strategy and certainly before deciding to invade. And most of all, I think I show very systematically and I think compellingly that the planning for phase four, the post-war stabilization phase, was totally inadequate and that the execution of the policy was uh, almost unforgivable in the sense of poor coordination, contradictory goals, and policymakers who, frankly, were pursuing very different ends from from one another. And the president did not really clearly impose his will on the decision-making process. And so ultimately, I think both Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld and, and President Bush, you know, must be criticized for for a poor process and poor planning and poor execution. So the people in the administration, obviously, and and many of their supporters are very unhappy with that critical part. So, you know, I'm subject to criticism from both sides, people who don't like my empathy and people who don't like my criticism. I'll I'll just say, if I could just make one quick comment, then over to you, Eric. You know, it, it often seems to me that that distinction between policy and execution is really important. And, you know, policymaking takes place in this fog of uncertainty where, you know, everything looks terrible. Uh, there are no really good choices out there. There are a lot of bad choices. And so it's in the nature of a, a bit of a gamble. But what really does matter, I think, is execution and follow through and all that sort of stuff. And frankly, even though I was part of the administration, I would I would completely agree with that part of your assessment. I think I might some of the areas where I'd put blame might be a bit different, but that's a, um, a, s- a separate matter. But over to you, Eric. So, Mel, I know you've heard this. Uh, you've heard it from me, but you've heard it from a, a number of others, uh, which is uh, among all the books that have been written, and I can't say I've read all of them, but I have read more than my share of the books written about the decision-making leading up to the war. Yours is the one that best captures the experience I lived through um, you know, from 2001 to 2003 and before, because I was involved in government in earlier phases as well. And I do think that's really a tribute uh, to you as a, a historian. And uh, But your empathy, obviously, uh, as your comments a second ago show, did not in any way get in the way of your critical faculties, because you've got a lot uh, of criticism, um, some of which I agree with, some which I, I agree with less. The lack of phase four planning, I think, is, you know, absolutely crucial here because it, you know, so much flows from that. And that, it seems to me, is a failure that really needs to be laid at the feet of the U.S. military, which I think has not perhaps been introspective enough about its role in this. I mean, a lot of the focus has been on civilians and the uh, civilian decision making. But the you know so-called phase four stabilization operations uh, at the conclusion of combat, uh, planning for it was a responsibility of the CENTCOM commander, Tommy Franks, and he flatly refused to do that. You know, so I know you've used very heavily in in your book the um, you know massive two-volume 
uh, history of the uh, war by the, uh, United, uh, the of the United States Army's role in the war that the army has published, which is, you know, I think a, a useful source, but I, I think it only begins to scratch the surface really of uh, some of the areas where, you know, the military was not, you know, particularly capable in, in carrying this policy forward. And is that a fair criticism in your view? I, I think it's a fair criticism. And I, I do state in the book very clearly that Tommy Franks, like Secretary Rumsfeld, had no real interest in the phase four stabilization phase. I also think that uh, the planning for phase four, the military planning for phase four, was tremendously complicated by the frequent change in key military people. So, you know, the, the, the head of the land forces, right, the new head of the land forces was put in just in the fall of 2002. He changes some of the, some of the military plans that had been evolving. And, um, and there is work go, going on. In fact, I just recently received an email message from a Colonel Benson, who was a key planner um, in Kuwait, working on the post-war stabilization phase on Eclipse 2. And he congratulated me on, on the book, uh, but he also wanted to clarify some of the issues about uh, the post-war planning. And of course, one of the things he, he pointed out to me, which I don't state in the book, was that once the fighting was over and Rumsfeld, uh, Secretary Rumsfeld appointed um, Sanchez, General Sanchez, to take command. Sanchez then decided to rewrite the plan Eclipse 2. And according to Colonel Benson in his message to me, this is not my book, but in his, in his message to me, I don't think he would shy away from my saying this, um, that th there was then no agreed plan, um, you know, for at least many months. So one, one of the problems is, Eric, in terms of answering your question about the responsibilities or, or, or how to assign responsibility between civilians and military, I think the civilians and the military here are really interdependent on one, on one another because, um, you know, the, 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 I, I, my sense is that President Bush and Rumsfeld met constantly with Franks and others um, to discuss the combat, but they didn't really focus themselves on the post-war. So Franks probably had little incentive uh, to focus on it, although it clearly was his responsibility. And the planners knew they had to work on a phase four. But then there's a change in military leadership, in, you know, um, uh, in terms of, uh, of the command, and there's no real focus. And I show, Eric, in the book itself, looking at the after action reports of key military units that in their own recordings of what went on is that they moved into Iraq in which they say they had no plans. The units themselves had no clear plans about what they should be doing once the adversary surrendered and the regime was toppled. They did not know what right. to do. Right. Well, and, yeah, I, I, if I, just for one second, Elliot, if I could, because I want to make it clear that I'm not just trying to throw shade on, on you know, our military colleagues. The reality is we ended up with a war plan, 1003 Victor, the final plan, which was a, a regime change, regime decapitation plan. And that really imposed on us, I think, a responsibility to put in its place something else, whatever that something was. 
And I think the policy process failed to do that before we we ended up at at war. And we can go into more detail about you know how that happened and why. But I think it was a terrible failing of the process that we did not get there. If I could, I I would just add a a comment. To this I think the issues. I mean, I agree that it was a failure of the policy process. I think that's actually should be widely shared. It's not just Rumsfeld and Franks. It probably does go to the NSC staff yes. uh, who have a role in all this. But I think there's also a profound institutional aspect to this, which is the United States Army really did not want anything to do with military governance, certainly did not want to think about counterinsurgency kind of problems. I mean, this was... Uh, you know, this was a military that particularly after an army rather that particularly after the first Gulf War said that's what we want our wars to be like. You know, the Air Force bombs them for a while. We have a dashing ground campaign uh, for a few days, maybe a couple of weeks, and that's it. And you know, I the the culture was not there to say you know if you take down a country, you're going to have to prepare to run it and. And in that respect, by the way, I think it's very different than, say, if you look at the American uh, U.S. Army during World War II, which already in 1943 is understanding that you're going to have some period of military government, government, and you better have civil affairs units that are ready to do it. I mean, this this gets down into the weeds, but look at how, how the Army treats civil affairs units, which who are the people you want to actually do military government. They were all in the reserves. They were all in the reserve component, absolutely. Yeah. I totally agree with that. But it also underscores a key part of the planning process that I'm critical of in the book, and that strikes me as more and more important. And that is, is, when the war planning began, Elliot, Rumsfeld and General Franks stated very clearly their basic assumption, goals, Regime change, WMD. That's the way it was stated. Regime change, WMD. Note, nothing about democracy, freedom, nation building, reconstruction. Not, not, nothing about, about that. Now, there was a discussion, as I point out, in the NSC in August of 2002, in which uh, Condi Rice passed around a, a paper that I believe her staff wrote, that I don't know who, who exactly wrote it, and it was about goals, goals. And the, if I recall correctly, the number one goal on that paper was something like, you know, promoting democracy. It immediately engendered, according to memoirs, um, according, especially Doug Fife's memoir, criticism from Secretary Rumsfeld, in which he um, apparently he said uh, any such paper must start with a goal that relates to our interests, not with what's going on inside Iraq. And according to Doug Fife. And other memoirs, this led to extensive discussion and rewriting. And basically, some paper was agreed upon, that a revised paper was agreed upon, in which democracy was much further down. It was more like ending tyranny rather than pr- pr- promoting democracy. But the basic point that, um, that Doug Fife says in that memoir, and I think other people have confirmed, was that there was no real agreement. A paper, you know, um, was processed, but there was no real agreement. And there is no indication anywhere that President Bush himself imposed himself at that point in time and said, yes, if we go into Iraq, the goal is promoting democracy. And I want all of you to begin working on that. That doesn't seem to have been said at all. And I believe this lack of clarity on goals, which is different than motives, but the lack of clarity about goals was an incredible part of the process. I mean, Secretary Rumsfeld says explicitly about himself that he didn't really care about what happened inside Iraq once he knew that the regime of Saddam Hussein was no more. And once 
he had assurance that there were no weapons of mass destruction or that we had gained control of those weapons of mass destruction. That's what he cared about. Yeah, but, th but there's still a failure there, isn't there? Because A tremendous failure. Well, I mean, but, but a somewhat different failure maybe than one might think in that, you know, it, it's not that the choice is either decapitate the regime, get rid of the, find and neutralize the WMD or promote democracy. I mean, even if you think that, yes, you want to knock off the regime, get rid of WMD and you don't care about democracy, you have to have some sort of regard for how do you maintain order until you disengage. I mean, that that's for me the real and some sort of theory of how you're going to end up disengaging from this. And that, for me, is the thing that I, I continue to find uh, baffling. I, I also, I wanted to pursue one other thing. I mean, one of the things that really st it struck me at the time, because uh, I had little windows into it, and it strikes me even more in retrospect, is, you know, here you had a team where several of the principals really hated each other. I mean, Powell and Rumsfeld, where it's not just them, but... Armitage, uh, the deputy uh, secretary of state, and Wolfowitz, the deputy secretary of defense. They may have been friends in the past, but boy, were they at uh, daggers drawn. Doug Feith, the undersecretary for policy. Mark Grossman, the uh, undersecretary for political affairs, really don't get along. And, and there's just no sense that either the president or the national security advisor is exercising discipline. I mean, it just I'm, I'm, I, in retrospect, I find it more and more puzzling. And I was wondering if you had any insight. First, if you agree with that characterization, uh, you might not. And then secondly, why, why do you think that happened? I, I do totally agree with that characterization. And I am critical of the president and of Condi Rice and her deputy at the time, uh, Steve Hadley, um, for not imposing more more order, or in the case of, of Condi Rice and Steve Hadley, perhaps not totally adequately informing the president of just how much acrimony what was, go, was going on. Interestingly, the paper record doesn't do much to illuminate why there was such poisonous relationships. Some of the oral histories um, uh, make it clear that there was, and of course the memoirs make it clear. And uh, Elliot, in, in many of my interviews, I asked the people, you know, why were there such poisonous relations amongst people who previously had really known each other extremely well, and some of whom, from what I could understand, were once really pretty close personal friends, and yet there was unbelievable rancor. And when I asked that question, I was uh, puzzled by the responses, which were frequently, um, people shook their shoulders and said, I'm not quite sure. I don't know exactly what, what happened. Now, later on, you know, when there were all sorts of issues with regard to um, the leaks, with regard to Valerie Plum, and um, then, then it becomes clear why, why people were, were you know, so hostile to one another. But this rancor that you're alluding to, Elliot, uh, emerges quite early in the process and um, is, is really hard to explain. But it has a very poisonous impact on the policy process itself and especially on the execution of policy. Many people in interviews complained that Condi Rice and Steve Hadley were too focused on consensus. Actually, that criticism emanated from different camps of the administration. Both, both people who worked for Secretary Powell felt that way, and people who worked for Vice President Cheney felt that way. And people who worked for Secretary Rumsfeld often talked about there was too much focus on consensus. Nothing ever got concretely done. Now, even if some of Rice's and Hadley's subordinates agreed with that. But to tell you the truth, as, as, as the two of you probably know very, very well, but maybe your listeners don't, uh, 
Steve Hadley and Condi Rice really resent that criticism. Um, they, they don't believe that they were overly focused on consensus, and they often say uh, they were happy to pass on, you know, divergent options to President Bush, who could readily make the decision, who was a tough guy and could readily make the decision. I believe that's more characteristic of what happened in Bush's second administration than in what happened during the years of 2001, 2002, 2003 that, that I focus on. And um, I'm just speculating, and this is not in my book, it's just a speculation, that Condi Rice herself um, maybe did not want to let the president know just how much acrimony there was because maybe she feared that he himself uh, would hold her responsible for that rancor or assume that she should be taking care of the problem. And she didn't want the president to know how much of that was going on. But I must say, and it's really important in understanding the policy process, that Secretary Rumsfeld's contempt for Condi Rice was so transparent in the snowflakes that he actually sent to her. Now, I've studied other administrations, and I know very well that policymakers are often in disagreement and come to dislike one another intensely, but they don't say it to one another's faces how much they dislike one, one another. And Secretary of Rumsfeld, I point out in, in one snowflake, um, actually writes to her and says, um, if you do this again, the Secretary of Defense says to the National Security Advisor, if you do this again, I'm going to report you to the president. I'm going to explain, you know, to the president. And it's like having a third grade kid in which the teacher says to the third grade, if you talk in class again, I'm going to call your parents and tell and and tell them. And, um, you know, there, there was disrespect in, inherent in that that was palpable. And I, I, I think that disrespect actually gravitated through the ranks of the Defense Department during this first administration. Eric, you were there, you could, at least in the second administration in the Defense Department. In the first, you're, you're in the vice president's office. But in the, in the office of the Secretary of Defense, in 2002-2003, I think that contempt gravitated down because re repeatedly other policymakers throughout the bureaucracy complained, for example, bitterly about the way Doug Fife dealt with them and felt that he often obstructed the, poli the policy-making process. And, um, and, you know, I've spoken at length to, to Doug Fife, and um, I hate to have to say that I think that's true because I really like him personally, but I, I have a sense that those complaints about him probably are reasonably accurate. And I discussed some of that um, in, in the, one of the concluding chapters of the book. You know, one of the things... <laughs> that may be hard for people to actually appreciate or believe is that even if you're in the middle of this maelstrom, it's sometimes hard to figure out exactly what's going on. It's certainly the case that we had well beyond in the Bush 43 administration, as you say, Mel, the normal scratchiness that exists between um, secretaries of state and national security advisors or uh, secretaries of defense. And I mean, I lived through you know, a lot of this. I mean, you know, Cy Vance and Zbig Brzezinski, you know, did not get along. I mean, Henry Kissinger had enormous battles with Mel Laird and later with um, with Jim Schlesinger. Schultz and Weinberger. Schultz and Weinberger, which I lived through as a special assistant to Schultz, where, you know, loggerheads for much of their uh, tenure. I mean, it's a subject we discussed at, at length with Phil Taubman, uh, who's just written a biography of, of Secretary Schultz. What we had in Bush 43 was well beyond that. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it was really 
um, not just personality clashes. It really, as you say, Mel, it leached down and, and became kind of bureaucratic tribalism. I confess I was, you know, subject to that. I mean, and it started before 9-11. I mean, it, it started very early in the administration. Uh, some of it had to do with a lot of leaking going on, you know, uh, and it was, I think the leaks were coming from everywhere. Although, you know, when you ask people, everyone said, well, we didn't leak that. So it was always, you know, it was state or it was DOD or it was the NSC or it was, you know, OVP. So, and, you know, and I knew I wasn't talking to anybody in the press at all, you know, because Vice President Sometimes Peter. it was open. Do you remember Larry Wilkerson going, this is oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. chief of staff to Colin Powell, going openly after Paul Wolfowitz, who was the deputy secretary of defense. What did he call him, a Bolshevik or a Trotskyite or something? I mean, it was it was outrageous. Yeah, no, there was a lot of it. And I mean, I think, you know, I... I you know, I mean, we could figure I could sort of say, who, you know, where I think the blame, you know, lays preponderantly. But the truth is, it was it was ubiquitous. It was every, it was all throughout the administration. And it was incredibly debilitating. Actually, Eric, I'll just say that in, in the oral history that Secretary of State Powell, General Powell and uh, Richard Armitage did together with the Miller Center Oral History Project, um, mm-hmm. Colin Powell talks about um, how he felt apart from the other boys uh, in, in the in the administration and he felt that way he suggests from almost the the very beginning and um, and my sense is that that partly I don't write this in the book but my sense is that in part he's his own sort of aloofness and his sense of self wound up making it difficult for others who were not his subordinates. His subordinates loved him, that's for sure. His subordinates loved him. But for others, I think it became hard to engage with him. And he himself, from the interviews I conducted and from the oral interviews that exist elsewhere, he himself seemed wary to engage in substance in substantive discussion with many of his colleagues in the administration, thinking perhaps that he could bring his reservations or concerns directly to the president. But at the same time, he rarely asked for direct meetings with the president and they did not happen very frequently we know we know about two or three that were very important when they did happen but i think it's probably a little perplexing i'm not positive this is a true statement but i think it's perplexing how relatively infrequently secretary of state Powell met directly with president bush and that clearly was a problem when others believed that Secretary of State Powell did not really explain or develop whatever reservations he really had. And when, frankly, on the other hand side of the, 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 the uh, circle, uh, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld often did not speak clearly about what he himself believed. Sometimes he spoke directly that he wanted A, and sometimes he spoke directly that he wanted B, and there really were just unbelievable contradictions between A and B, and he could speak pretty eloquently about either A or B without ever resolving what he really wished, and I think that complicated the process enormously. I don't think others often knew what what Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld really felt about specific issues. Let me add one thing to that, Mel, which is that Secretary Rumsfeld would frequently come into principals or NSC meetings, and I witnessed this myself, and reverse what his subordinates had agreed to at lower levels, either at the assistant secretary or sub-cabinet level in the deputies committee, and basically made it clear that only he spoke for the Department of Defense. Nobody else, not Doug, not, not anybody else, not Paul, nobody else spoke for the department. 
And that had a terribly unsettling effect on our, you know, interagency deliberations, in part because, you know, George Shultz used to say nothing is ever, you know, resolved in Washington, everything gets relitigated. But this took it to a completely different level where you couldn't count on, uh, you know, an agreement reached interagency, you know, surviving a principles committee or an NSC meeting because the secretary might come in and say something totally different. Uh, On the other hand, you know, I remember one of Secretary Powell's subordinates telling me Powell came back from, you know, uh, the latest meeting in the White House. He was really angry. And he said, Rumsfeld snowflakes are killing me. You know, I went over and I talked to Condi and she th- shoved this snowflake in my face. And I need to have memos like that. You know, I, I need to be sending memos like that, too. And but the truth is, as, as far as I can tell, that never happened. And we had a discussion uh, last week when we did an event at UVA for your book, where we were talking about the uh, Bill Burns perfect storm memo, which is frequently cited. Uh, it's, it's reproduced, I believe in Bill's book uh, about all the terrible things that could happen if we invaded Iraq. But I don't recall that memo ever coming forward in an interagency setting and being shared with anybody. You know, I think there's another angle to this as well, which is one is the human relations part of it that Powell and Rumsfeld and Cheney, who we haven't really talked about, were all extremely senior to um, Condoleezza Rice. You know, they would have remembered her as sort of a bright young academic who came to the joint staff uh, for a year when they were already, you know, uh, cabinet secretaries or chairman of the Joint Chiefs and stuff like that. And I think that made it very difficult for her to really assert authority in the way that, say, Brent Scowcroft, her her mentor, had. I mean, maybe it was doable, but it was, I think, innately very tough. But I think the other thing is, um, although, you know, Powell and Rumsfeld were obviously very capable men, each in their different ways, neither of them were really foreign policy thinkers, conceptualizers. Um, They were kind of practical implementer types. And as a result, I don't think they were they were inclined to have that kind of conversation, which you know might conceivably have taken you to a, a better place. And Cheney, I think, is somewhat different in that uh, in that regard. They were not so inclined, and I think this seeped through the bureaucracy. And of course, the point I emphasize in the book and in that discussion at the Miller Center was that the perfect storm memo often alluded to as illustrating opposition to the prospective invasion was a truly terrible memo. It was, it did not present any clear argument about what was most likely to happen. It was simply, as I say in the book, a laundry list of all the things that might possibly go wrong. Now, to his credit, Assistant Secretary Bill Burns, he was then the Assistant Secretary. Now, of course, he's director of the CIA. Um, But to his credit, he acknowledges that it was a very poor uh, memo. What needs to be stated is how important it is to do good staff work. And, um, you know, uh, and, and here it really was Secretary of State Powell's obligation, in my opinion, to hand that memo back to Bill Burns and to say, write me up something that is really useful, that I can circulate, um, that you know can could really form a basis for discussion. Now he, now Secretary of State Powell, uh, allegedly had that memo literally in his pocket when he had that very important so-called pottery barn conversation with President Bush in early August of, of 2002, when he was talking about all the, some of the things that could go wrong and how the president and the United States would be held responsible. And he said, it's like a pottery barn. If you break something, you're going to be, be held responsible. That, that was an opportunity for the president and for Condi Rice. Condi Rice was at that meeting to say, well, let's see this spelled out. Let, 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 let's see a systematic assessment of, you know, all, 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 all the pieces of furniture or 
you know, all the pieces of pottery that might be broken and how it might impact upon our prospective decision to invade. She did not ask for a memo and Secretary of State Powell did not ask his subordinates to re to rewrite that memo. And I don't think there is, a, from what I can see in the printed record so far, that's become accessible. There was no really good assessment of what might happen until maybe January 2003, when there are these two National Intelligence Agency assessments uh, about uh, regional consequences and domestic, I forget what it's called. There are two, two studies um, that are actually done, but there is no indication that these studies received any careful scrutiny at the time and certainly did not lead to an options memo. Uh, it was probably too late in the game for that to happen because it was already January of, of, of 2003. I'd like to ask just a final question, since I know we're out of time, and I want to give uh, the final words to and questions to Eric. Uh, you know, I, and in a way, it's a double-barreled question, because this is partly based on my own experience, but largely just through observation. You know, the era of carefully crafted memoranda driving policy debate, I think, is behind us. Instead, you have a lot of PowerPoints, you have a lot of telephone calls, you have a lot of emails, uh, you have the video teleconferences that, uh, you know, I remember a lot of, I don't know if any of our conversations were really uh, critical when we were, uh, uh, or consequential, Eric, when we were in government, but it seemed to me it was usually the uh, the screen lighting up at the end of the day, and, and we and we had a, a conversation. So the, it seems to me that that's, that has an effect that was mostly mental health. Uh, yeah, well, I was, I, I, was, I was your therapist, I think. But, you know, our, our, our mutual friend and colleague, uh, Phil Selico, I think has talked about this, about the decline of really comprehensive staff work. So that, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious to know what you think of that, whether uh, that sort of breakdown in the, the discipline of writing uh, affects policymaking. But it has another consequence, which is, for professional historians like you, I mean, how do you, how do you go about recovering and reconstructing and analyzing the past when a lot of the record is going to be either extremely fragmented or just, you know, gone because it's uh, in phone calls and VTCs and and that that sort of thing. Well, it's it's very difficult. I think that it's really important to access and assess as much of the written record as one can possibly get hold of. I myself tried to um, look at as, as many documents a, as I could that have been declassified. Uh, one of the uh, assessments of my book that was critical suggested that I relied much too much on interviews. Actually, all the claims of my book or virtually all the substantive claims of my book are based on the written documents as well as the interviews. So I think that's uh, the, the interviews helped immensely to illuminate and embellish. But even in my account, when I had only a fragmentary record that exists right now, uh, I relied as much as I as much as I could on the, on the on the written documents. I think, Elliot, that it will be very important to try to get as many more documents that, than I've been able to get. Um, most of my mandatory declassification requests were denied in full or came back hugely redacted. Some of them I've still not heard from, even though they're four, five, six years um, old. I think it will be to understand why the United States invaded Iraq. I agree with Philip Zelikow's opinion uh, that having the daily intelligence reports and the presidential daily briefs to get a sense of the threats as perceived on a daily and weekly basis and linking them to the actual actions that were happening each and every month. 
I think that that will be uh, very important. So to answer your, your, your question, we must continue to get as many documents as we can. But I also think that the focus on oral histories and on interviews is appropriate. I think I learned a lot from my own interviews. I think that the interviews systematically conducted by the Miller Center with members of the administration, most of those interviews, not all by any means, but most of them have been now um, made made available to the public. I, I think they are extremely helpful. As I have said many times in, in talking to most of the policymakers, I realized that they were far better able to spin than I was to probe. I mean, they're masters of a- answering difficult questions. But nonetheless, to tell you the truth, I learned a lot about simply the quality of the people that I was talking to. And um, I got a sense of their intelligence their earnestness. You know, you began this program with a quip, Elliot, about, uh, well, if they weren't stupid and they weren't criminals. Well, since a, lo- a, lot, of, a lot of people think they were stupid and or cr- criminals, um, you know, I think it was, and a lot of my friends believe they were stupid and, and, and criminals. I learned a lot from, from talking to most of, most of these people. And I think um, I think the way we tend to caricature and satirize people is extremely counter-effective. You can criticize people uh, because uh, without thinking that they're criminals or fools. And one of the things that I've learned in all my writing on the history of American foreign policy is that decision-making is hard. People are faced, policymakers are faced with terribly difficult challenges. There are usually no clear-cut right answers. And the consequences of any particular action are usually pretty imponderable. We can see in retrospect how many things went wrong, but foreseeing a lot of that is is very difficult. That does not excuse policymakers from trying. And often in this case, they did not try hard enough. And I blame them for that. Mel, we are running out of time. And God, we could go on for hours, I think, on this subject. But let me um, just ask you one question to close us out. I mean, one of your criticisms is that those of us who were involved in the policymaking did not interrogate the intelligence enough, that there were some indications that, you know, the the bulk of the intelligence that we had, which spanned, I can say, because I saw a lot of it in the previous administration, in the Clinton administration, wasn't very different from what we saw in the Bush administration, but that uh, there were signs that it wasn't, you know, correct. I guess, I mean, I, I, I would, I think, probably dissent from that. I'm not, I'm not sure, had we interrogated the intelligence in any more detail, we would have gotten a different, a different answer, in part because of what you said earlier, the, the fact that everyone had already had an experience through Bush 41 and into Clinton and then Bush 43 of Saddam's history of deceit and deception about his WMD, the cheat and retreat, cat and mouse with the inspectors, what we found from the, his two sons-in-law who defected and then foolishly went back to Iraq to be personally murdered by, by Saddam. All of that, I think, as French structuralists would say, you know, overdetermined, you know, where, where we where we came out. So I guess my question for you is, if you were not Mel Leffler, Edward Statinius professor at UVA, but had been the you know uh, Undersecretary of State or Defense, what policy would you have advocated in two thousand two and three for dealing with the problem of Saddam? We had this problem. He was, you know, sitting cheek by jowl with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, other oil producing countries. Because he had not been eliminated at the end of the first Gulf War, we had a lot of troops in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. It was a big recruiting tool. 
for Al-Qaeda. The sanctions regime was deteriorating for sure. We had no inspectors in the country after uh, 1998. So the uncertainties about the WMD were even higher than they were in the 90s. And in the light of 9-11, the you know, willingness to take risk with that was much lower, as you say, when you talk about the threat. So what alternative should we have pursued rather than going to war? We know how badly that turned out, but what, you know, what, what could we have done differently? Don't let me off, off the hook um, with, res- with responding to, to, to your good query. But let me start by, by saying that I think one of the lessons of, of this experience is the importance of policymakers reexamining basic assumptions. So you're right, it would have been very hard. But as I point out in the book, there is this extremely disturbing memo that uh, Donald Rumsfeld asks for from his chief of intelligence on the Joint Staff. And General Schaefer, this is, I think, October 2002, writes a memo in response to Donald Rumsfeld's query, you know, what what do we really know about Saddam's weapons of mass destruction? And Schaefer writes back, General Schaefer writes back about a 10-page memorandum saying, you know, we know sort of 40% about his chemical weapons, 30% about his bioweapons, you know, 20% about his nuclear weapons. I'm making up these percentages, but they're they're order, order of magnitude. And he concludes it by by saying, I mean, it's striking. So, Mr. Secretary, we really don't know how much we don't know. And um, and Rumsfeld seems to know this is an important memo. And um, he writes a snowflake, quote, end quote, three words. This is big. And he sends that snowflake to General Myers, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. But he doesn't send that snowflake to, to Rice or Shaney or, or, or Powell. Yeah, I never saw I'm, that memo. I'm perplexed by that. This is, uh, right, you're in the vice president's office then, right? Um, and, um, and you know, I, I think that was a moment, at least for him, in which he should have sent around a memo to all the principals and said, look at this. This comes from the joint staff. I think we need to reexamine what, what we're thinking. Now, you're right, Eric, that there's so much already embedded, it's hard. But I think one of the lessons is reexamine fundamental axioms at times when, when you're about to do something really important like invade another country. Now, it's easy for me to say, as I've said many times, it's easy for anyone to say, any commentator, re-examine fundamental assumptions. How often do I re-examine my own fundamental assumptions? How often do you? I know it's hard. I know we don't do it. Let's, not, let, let, let's be honest about this. But one of, the, one of the lessons is when you're about to do something really consequential, you should re-examine fundamental assumptions. Now, to, to answer your your terrific question about, you know, what would I do? I agree with all those things you said. Containment was sort of um, breaking down. Sanctions weren't working. The inspections regime, unless uh, un, un, unless supported by force, was not likely um, to, to to stay in, in effect. The no-fly zones were being challenged. All, all of this is true. So what, what, what was the alternative? I would say, Eric, that the alternative, if the consequences had been carefully assessed the, and, and, and seen as uncertain, I think the alternative was to live with all the uncertainties, to continue to live with all the uncertainties. To keep, you know, as many American forces as 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 could be deployed in the vicinity without 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 preparing for for an invasion. Um, I know it was getting more difficult because, for good reasons, the Saudis didn't want our troops there. Saudi Arabia didn't want our troops there, and the very fact that we had any troops there was sort of nurturing 
um, terror, terrorist op opposition and, and, and Islamic hatred for the United States. And so there was no good answer, but I think the, and there's no clear, wonderful solution to the question you're probing me, but I would say live with those uncertainties. We always live with them. They're fraught, but I don't think Saddam posed such a threat that we needed to invade the country. He was an evil, horrible, terrible, aggressive human being. There was reason to despise this person, and there was reason to support regime change. But that doesn't mean there was reason to go to war, in my, in, in, in my opinion. Um, and um, we exaggerated the threat he posed because he was such a despicable leader. Uh, but I don't think it, he posed that sort of a threat to us. Well, Mel, you're going to get the last word here today. Thanks for spending so much time with us today. I appreciate your time. And uh, the book is terrific. I commend it to all our listeners, Confronting Saddam Hussein, George W. Bush, and the Invasion of Iraq, published by Oxford University Press and available to you from uh, wherever you get your books, whether it's an independent bookstore or online. I encourage all of our listeners to read it. Mel, thank you. Thank you, Mel. Thank you very much.